Good afternoon, guys. This is Faber McMullen. And this is Sandy McMullen. And we are so happy you're joining us today. Today, we're going to be talking really over the next probably weeks and weeks on spiritual warfare. Uh, it's a topic that is of great importance and it's of great interest. And I wanted to uh, go ahead and open us in prayer before I start. And then I'm going to let you guys know how I came up with the idea to take us into this study, and Sandy's got some great thoughts, too. So we're just going to share them today. We're not going to sing songs. We're just going to go right in to the study. So if you'll join me now in prayer, Lord God in heaven, thank you that you equip us for every good work. Lord, I thank you that you are our sword. You are our shield. You are our helmet. Lord, you are all that we need. Lord, to make it through this journey that we have that you've put us on here on this earth. So, Lord, I pray now for the congregation at Union Grove. Lord, I pray for our continued safety from this virus that's part of a broken world that's out here among us. Lord, thank you. We want to give you thanks together that to this point we've had no illness in our congregation. In fact, you've spared us from illness other than a cold Kelton had and, Lord, a, a sore leg on Kathy, and Lord, we've been healthier than we've ever been as a congregation over these months, and we thank you for that. Lord, guard our hearts, teach our hearts. Lord, guard our minds and teach our minds now as we engage in this important study. Lord, and we just give you glory and praise and honor, and we pray this all in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. I think what started this was that I recently had a friend that came to me and, and he asked me to read a book and let me know what he thought about it. And it had to do with healing and uh, kind of the premise in the book. Uh, I mean, it was kind of interesting. It was uh, I, I read the credentials, of course, first of the author. And the author is a, is a guy who's got several degrees from uh, Baptist universities. And, uh, you know, I would call him... Uh, an orthodox evangelical author and uh, the premise for the book the main premise is that those that want to uh, have healing in their broken spirits uh, can learn biblical truths and that much of this arises out of demonic warfare or spiritual warfare the books offered I, I saw it on Amazon last night I was looking at it it's a, it's a, it calls itself a self-help book an instruction book for those desiring to learn how to hurt, to help hurting people find freedom, peace, and joy. That's pretty attractive. All of us would like to find freedom, peace, and joy. And we would like to help other people to do the same. <coughs> exactly. We all do that in our ministry. We're, we're with people trying to help them find the peace and the joy that we found in the Lord as well. Uh, I, I read it when we were on our vacation. I'd read it at night. And, and it starts off in one part in the book. It talks about reclaiming all the legal ground that Satan has taken. And it talks about stuff about inheriting demons from sinful ancestors and that sometimes sinful behaviors can happen because we have these demons in, or, or that we've kind of inherited and, from and people now above this us. Was, this was stuff this guy was mentioning that you weren't really sure was backed up by Scripture. Yeah, it began correct. to bother me as I read yeah, it. And I, I right. would say to Sandy, this bothers me. What do you think? And the book ended up claiming, it makes this strange claim that demons have legal authority. And, of course, that got my attention as a lawyer to play havoc in our lives. And uh, that if we go through these right processes and procedures, we can reclaim spiritual ground from the enemy and receive 
freedom, peace, and joy. Right, that it requires some specific, uh, you know, little set thing that you do to make these demons go away and leave you alone. But um, one thing that a friend of Faber's has pointed out is that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't need anything else to help to defeat Satan. And that some of these exercises kind of distract us from what our real problem is, which is the problem inside of us and having to do with coping with our own sin. <clears throat> and Faber <clears throat> has a good example from the Civil War, actually. Well, I'm, I'm going to get to that. But first, I want to say that one of the main claims in the book that really bothered me is a lawyer was saying that these demons have a right to us, that they have a right to harangue us, harass us, and, and such. And I just don't believe that the Bible supports a claim like that. It, it doesn't, the book stops short of saying that we can actually be demon-possessed, but it does give all of these experiences that the author has of finding people that he calls demonized who were being influenced by a multitude of demons and such, and, and, and it really bothered me. It didn't, it didn't pass what we call in law the smell test. It didn't seem right. So I, I thought about it all, and it, and it promotes the kind of ideas that, you know, we can bind Satan and his demons in Jesus' name. Uh, is, demon, is this demon of lust what causes, say, me to lust or to fall into sexual sin? Is there a demon of adultery? Can, by prayer, can you exercise a whole city? Can Christians be cursed? Can demons make you sin? These are some of the questions that came up in the book and, and, and came up in my mind. Can pagan objects haunt you or curse your house? And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about all this. One of the first things I did is I, I called up one of my spiritual mentors, Dr. Robert Dean, or Robbie Dean as I call him, Robbie's written many, many books. He's had a vibrant ministry for over 40 years. He is a, an expert in, in biblical Koine Greek, and he is an expert in Hebrew. So I asked him, I said, Robbie, have you ever encountered these kinds of questions that I've seen in this book that I read? And he said, have I ever encountered them? Yes, and I've written books on the, on the whole thing. Robbie wrote a book that's now out of print called Spiritual Warfare. So many of the uh, premises and many of the analyses that I'm going to be presenting to you are in Robbie's book. And I want to first start off and say that, you know, I want to disclose that and say that's where I'm getting uh, maybe some of the structure to what I'm going to be teaching you. I love Robbie. He's a mentor to me. And he was kind of my first delving into the whole thought of going to seminary. I would go down to Houston for a few months and Robbie would teach me how to learn. He taught me how to learn by showing me different programs that looked at the Greek, looked at the Hebrew, and, and just looked at the context of Scripture and basic hermeneutics and so on and so forth. One of the first things I think that's a big mistake is that many Christians don't even realize that they're in a war. They deny that Satan exists or they just think this is all hokey or it's hocus pocus. And I want to relate to y'all as Sandy mentioned, something that happened in the Civil War. It's one of my uh, favorite stories and probably one of the most interesting things to me that happened. In the early days of the conflict, uh, you know, they talked about battling and talked about doing battle and all this stuff, and it all culminated, I think it was in 1861, 
And there was a battle that was fought right out of outside of Washington, D.C., and the Union called it the battle, the first battle of Bull Run, and the Confederates called it the Battle of Manassas, okay? And what happened was, it seemed like when, when the battle was going to happen, everybody in Washington, D.C. got all excited about it because they thought that it was going to be like going to a soccer match, that this would be a bloodless war, that it would be kind of like this match, it would all be over in 10 or 15 minutes. So they packed up their the senators and their wives, and you can read all of this on history.com. And their picnics. They, they got their picnic lunches. They Some women got out there and set up booths where they could sell cakes and pies, kind of like you would if you're going to a, a, foot, fair, a football fair game or a fair. And they sat and watched, and first the Union troops had great success. You know, everybody cheered, and the on onlookers, I thought it was interesting, the Union onlookers trusted in these old generals who had really become fat and unfit. I, there's a guy named Winfield Scott who had been a hero in the Mexican War. They called him Old Fuss and Feathers. He was so overweight that they had to get people to help him get up on his horse to go into battle. I mean, that's how unprepared they were for what happened. And at first, the Union Army put on a good show. They were pushing back those bad rebels right off the battlefield, but then the tide turned, and you can go read the history of it. With brave maneuvering and, and lightning speed, the Confederate leadership shouted orders. Uh, Beauregard was in there. A guy named Thomas Jackson was in there. Uh, and there was a certain point in the battle when everything changed. It's when the Confederates stood firm. And it was interesting because they were being pushed back and pushed back and pushed back by the Union. And somebody shouted out, look up there at Jackson. He's standing there like a stone wall. And that's where he got the name Stonewall Jackson. Uh, bullets began to fly. The cannons began to roar. And in an instant, the, the football game, so to speak, turned into a war. The troops panicked. The Union troops, that is. Confusion and fear filled their ranks. And everybody began to run for the exit. They turned and ran. Of course, when the spectators saw this, they panicked too. Accounts are that they cut certain horses loose and men that just wanted to escape jumped on the <laughs> <coughs> the horses leaving their women behind with picnic lunches. It became a disaster. It, they, they say it was a picnic interrupted by a war. And on that day, 2,800 Union troops died there right in front of these spectators. They got their arms shot off, their heads shot off. Uh, it was a horrible thing. And you may ask, why am I telling this story? Because they never realized that they were in a war. They thought they were going to an event and it happened to be a war, and they didn't realize they were in the middle of full-blown conflict. Like those spectators, many Christians, many people in the church, have no awareness that they're in a war. Bullets are flying by them, cannonballs are going by them, and they don't even know it. And whether you want to be in the war or not, <coughs> guys, as a Christian, you are involved in this desperate cosmic conflict. The arena of war, or the thing that this war is circling around, is our relationship with God. Satan has been defeated. He just now wants to disrupt our relationship with God and our ability and our willingness to do what God desires for our life. He already lost the final war, and we know that he's been condemned to the lake of fire. We're told that in Matthew 25, 41. But as Dr. Dean says in his book, between the pronouncement of that verdict and the execution of the sentence lies the entire panorama of human history. And you and I are right smack dab in the middle of that human history. I'm going to turn this over to my bride now. And she's going to talk a little bit about 
how did this war get started to begin with? And then we're going to talk about some of the victory points in this war, and we're going to end up focusing on the world, the flesh, and the devil that were all affected by this fall that Sandy's going to talk about. Right. And so where did this conflict come from? How did this war get started? Um, the battlefield is inside of each one of us and lies in the power God gave us to choose between good and evil. You know, Jesus said, um, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And that, and that Jesus did that in his own life. And so, um, and he also, Jesus also said in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. So how do we overcome the world? in Jesus, through Jesus, through what he does in our lives. But I want to start by reading Genesis 3. I'll try to read it pretty quickly so it won't get too boring. But this is where it all began. This is where we can look and see the origins of Satan's power in the world, because yes, he does have power in the world, and his influence over us, and the the ourselves, the battle within ourselves. The brokenness of ourselves. Uh-huh, the brokenness of ourselves. Okay, so starting in, in 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals God, the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But God called to them, the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Okay, and this part is real key. It says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, or make enemies of them of each to each other, and between your, your offspring and hers, he, her offspring, will crush your head, and you will strike his heel, which means her offspring will destroy him, but he will temporarily wound her offspring. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing. Okay, now this is the part that shows you that we live in a fallen world. This is the fallen world curse. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. 
not because God wanted that to happen, but because that is part of this curse that they called upon themselves. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So if you're working in your garden and you're wondering, why does this have to be so hard? This is why, because this is the world that we live in today. Okay, so Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the entrance of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, now I read that to say we live in a fallen world. We now have a battlefield within our conscience and within our spirit of whether we're going to embrace the good or embrace the evil. And that all happened right here. And of course, Satan from the beginning was our enemy and he continues to be our enemy today. All right, so is, is that all you wanted to say on that for right now? Well, I, let me just say one more thing. Sure. In Luke 4, 5, <coughs> we have Jesus who during his temptation, Satan came to him and even tried to tempt Jesus, okay? And so one of the things he said to Jesus, which is curious, it says, The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you authority over all these kingdoms and all their glory, for it has been relinquished to me, and I can give it to anyone I wish. So if you worship me, it will be yours. If you're wondering where Satan got that authority, it came from Genesis 3, what I just read to you, where he was able to entice the woman and the man, because it says Adam was there with her. He watched what was going on, and he took part in it. And so this is where, this is where Satan's authority comes from, and this is where our battleground comes from that's within our heart and our spirit. And the Bible's clear. Uh... The Bible is clear that Satan is the prince of power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. And in 2 Corinthians 4.4, he is called the God, I would say, with the little g of this age. But the good news is, is that even though Satan has been given this dominion, as Sandy just said, it's been relinquished to him, is the Bible gives us clear instructions how you and I can be effective warriors in the fight. We are not helpless weaklings who are subject to whims of evil forces and things coming on us and in us. Rather, as Paul describes us, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8, 31 through 39, if you want to read it. And the great news is that God has graciously bestowed on his children what Ephesians 1, 3 says, every spiritual asset that we would ever need to be victorious in the conflict. Dr. Dean calls this a positional strength in Christ. It's a battle position. We have what, what generals long for, the high ground, and whether we know it or not, we are dealing from a superior position. We have the complete revelation of God found in the Bible, and not only that, we have the Holy Spirit 
that indwells us, guides us, teaches us, fills us, illuminates us, and I would say, most importantly, empowers us to overcome the evil in this war in which we fight. We will overcome by the very power of God. I'm, I'm reminded, Sandy, of the story of David and Goliath. I love the story. And David was this, I think of him as this 14, 13-year-old, kind of puny little guy, short little guy. I, I imagine him as my friend David Waxman that I grew up with. You know, it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. David, when he was yeah. thir- 13 yeah. years old, a little Jewish friend of mine. And there he found himself in this mortal battle with this Goliath who was this giant of the Philistines. They had been at war with the armies of Israel, and David showed up to bring cheese and stuff from home and saw this giant out there taunting the troops of Israel, and it enraged him. But what's interesting about the whole thing is David did not, and he could not because he didn't have them, did not rely on his own resources. He chose to lean on divine resources. And there's a lesson in there for each of us. It's so inspiring because as David looks up at that giant, he saw every human advantage that a person could have. Uh, Goliath was gigantic. He had a sword that weighed X amount, shields. You know, the Bible actually tells us what his armor weighed. Right. And I right. guess it was just outrageously impressive because the writer, Samuel, uh, he writes down everything about what it weighed. They must have waited after the event happened. But David, the bottom line is David was the underdog in the fight. Yet he boldly confronted Goliath in the moment of the battle. I, I love this thing. It's in the text of 1 Samuel 17, 14. When, when David realized he was outmatched in human terms, he looked up at that giant and, and it says, Then David said to the Philistine, You have come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, this God whom you have taunted. In the same way, we guys are supplied spiritual weaponry that is above and beyond our own capabilities. We don't have to rely on our own resources, but on the spiritual resources that God gives us in his word. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the weaponry uh, that he has given us, and we're going to figure out how we use this weaponry. And when we finish this course, I know that you're going to be able to distinguish between the weapons that God gives us to fight and these superstitions and bad interpretations of man that give us, I believe, false ways to do the spiritual battle. Right, Okay. right. The first thing out of the bag that we have is we enjoy, as Dr. Dean calls it, the ultimate intelligence. In determining biblical fact concerning spiritual warfare, the Bible is the only source of fact that we have. It's the only source of fact we have in understanding the fight that we're in and how to engage and win in the fight. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 tells us, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man, and I would add woman, or the person of God, may be adequate equipped for every good work. That's 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. Dr. Dean points out that there's three important things that this verse tells us. Number one, the source of the Bible is God. The Bible was not really written by men. It's written by God, okay? It's, it's, it's not written by men about their spiritual experiences. The book was authored by God through men to communicate divine truth to us concerning every area of our life. 
The scriptures were inspired by God, and this uh, we know this from the Greek word theopneustos, which literally means God-breathed. The scriptures are, in fact, God-breathed. They were breathed in the original languages, and the message that God intended to communicate was, in fact, communicated. We have to dig right. and learn and study right. to see what it was that God was saying and not misinterpret these scriptures. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.20, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture, that's no teaching of scripture, is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. I had a friend once in a men's Bible study that said, well, I just interpret all this differently. Well, God had an intention in what he communicated to us. And it's digging and learning and, you know, often looking at the original languages helps us to understand what was being communicated. Because <clears throat> another thing is every truth that is in the, in the Bible actually is documented in other places in the Bible with the same idea, with the same... Um, doctrine. And that's one of the it's principles. It's backed up by its own self. One of the principles of the discipline that we call hermeneutics. You know, one of them is you have to, you can't just cherry pick some some little verse out of the Bible and build a whole theology on it. Or even some phrase. Some or, phrase. or phrase, exactly. Number two, Dr. Dean tells us the Bible is absolute truth. Because the Bible is absolute truth, it's profitable to teach us. It corrects our thinking. When I read the Bible, it reproves me. That means it it, it, it kind of bangs up on me, beats up on me, and reprimands me for my wrong thinking and my wrong living. It, it instructs me. In Jesus' prayer on the night before he was crucified, he said, "Lord, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus states that God's word is truth. It's the word of God alone that gives us the truth we need to live out our lives according to his purposes and his plan. Thirdly, that that verse in 2 in 2 Timothy, it tells us that the about the purpose of the Word. The verse tells us that the Word has everything in it that's adequate. It's everything in it to equip us in every single way, including how to deal with spiritual warfare. The verse says that the man or the woman of God is thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Greek word there for adequate is artios, which means fit, complete, capable, and sufficient. And Dean in his book says that the word was used in the ancient world describing a ship and how it was totally outfitted and rigged and made ready to take on the voyage that had been determined for that ship. We too, and I add this in our own lives, find the sails and the blocks and the tackle, the mast and the rudder and every other thing we need to make the journey God has outlined for us, we find it in his word. It is the Bible that we can rely on. It is the sufficiency of of God's word that Peter talks about in 2 Peter 1, 3-4. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Listen, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you, and I'll say I, may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So we escape these bonds of a broken world right, by getting exactly. into the truth of God's Word. Exactly. Many Christians don't see the Bible as sufficient truth to build their lives upon. It's especially true in this realm of spiritual warfare, and they rely on these experiences 
and sources outside of oh, the Bible. In Hollywood. In Hollywood, yeah. They they watched what was the story about uh, the Exorcist. The Exorcist, or... and they 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 formulate their opinions about how uh, spiritual warfare is done by watching some Hollywood movie, The Exorcist. The only thing we can rely on is God's word, and when we drift from Scripture, we're going to get into some pretty weird stuff. In recent years, even in the Christian world, there's a lot of sensationalist material that's that's cropped up. It's abounded, in fact. Uh, there's much written on binding demons and taking dominion over Satan and uh, giving people special instructions on how to deal with you know so-called territorial spirits that live somewhere. And we need to ask ourselves, are these scriptural concepts or are they what man has dreamed up? We need to search the scriptures together to see what form of spiritual warfare, uh, what spiritual warfare is, and then what we do to combat it and get involved in it and what weaponry we use. The two passages we just re- reviewed, that's the 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 16, and 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4, teach us that the Bible gives us everything that we need to know in recognizing and dealing with any situation that might arise in our lives. And that, of course, Sandy, includes spiritual warfare and how we deal with it. So I want to just talk now last in summary as we uh, end this broadcast. A broad summary of spiritual warfare. We're going to learn in Scripture that spiritual warfare originates in three areas. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Right. I'm reminded of my little mama that every day prayed that I would be uh, protected from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I think her prayers were often answered. There's two primary areas when it comes to spiritual warfare among believers. They overemphasize, they overemphasize it or they underemphasize it. They blame every sin, problem, conflict, broken car on demons that need to be cast out. And you and I have both heard that kind of stuff. Okay? Right, exactly. Others just completely ignore that a war is going on and they're like those observers in the Battle of Bull Run. They completely ignore the spiritual realm and the fact that the Bible tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. The key to understanding and engaging in spiritual warfare is understanding exactly what Scripture says about these matters and what Scripture tells us to do about these things. So the three things in a nutshell are this. Number one, as you talked about, Sandy, the world's broken. It was broken, as Sandy pointed out, when man sinned. And as a consequence of of that sin, death entered the world. And I want to add, this includes the law of entropy. You know what entropy Everything is? Everything's falling apart. Everything's falling apart all the time and breaking down. Who can who can deny that? That certainly happens on the farm for sure. It, on the farm, and when and when your battery dies on your car after four or five years, guys, it's not a demon; it's a worn out battery. Okay, and and there's groups. Oh no, you know a demon's dealing with me. No, it's not. It's a six year old battery. Another aspect of the world, and this is kind of the part that I talk about and think about a lot is the human viewpoint that's brought into human thinking that excludes the possibility of God. That's really what humanism is. It creates solutions that are at enmity. That means at war with God. And they run counter to God's solutions and are at war with the divine viewpoint. And that usually comes from people who think that man is the highest you know, the highest authority when actually God is the highest authority. And I think that that is exactly what's the driving, uh, the beat or the driving uh, energy behind the whole idea of a one world government. If we had a one world government, we could have peace. That's what they say. That's not true. If we have one world government, we'll probably have totalitarianism. 
and oppression. You know, you know and, and the Bible didn't set up oppression. didn't set up things to be in a one world government. So number one, it's the effects of the world on our decision making, as you as you pointed out, it gets down to decision making. Number two, the flesh is still in there. You know, I've told you all these last weeks if we've studied Galatians that when you came to Christ you were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It was Jesus and belief in him alone and his work on the cross that 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 enabled God or to fulfill the promise to indwell you with the Holy Spirit. You received the Holy Spirit when you were born again, okay? And but, I have a little verse I can stick right in there, Hebrews 12, 1 through <coughs> 2. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance or something that trips us up, and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So guys, when you came to know the Lord, you were given the Holy Spirit, but you also have an old sin nature that you were born with that remains there in you. It's not a demon in you. It's your old sin nature. It's your it's your flesh, okay? And as we yield to the Holy Spirit, we keep that flesh under control, like you're talking about. The flesh with its passions and lusts remain deep in us, and but likewise, uh, they too are at war with the things of God, our flesh right. is. and God gives us the power to say no to those things and to overcome those things. And lastly is the evil realm. So the world, the flesh, and now we're going to talk about the devil. There actually is an evil realm. There is an evil realm, and Dr. Dean talks about it at great length, and I'm going to bring it out probably next week uh, or the week after. Uh, there is a angelic conflict that's going on. Satan and his fallen angels that we sometimes refer to as demons are loose on the earth and they wreak havoc. They can harass and they can harangue. They create chaos and disorder. They are real, but they are never to be feared because John, 1 John tells us, because he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. So that's what I want you to start off this study with. I want you to think about today and thank the Lord that you can have a victorious attitude we are on the winning side. Don't read this sermon and feel defeated, okay? It's absolutely exciting to think that we can receive biblical truth, we can apply it to our lives, and that we can be more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And remember that you plus God are a majority. There's no power on earth that can overcome the power of God as he empowers you, <coughs> you, <clears throat> and gives you the strength to fight this spiritual uh, battle. You want any, You have anything to add? Uh, no, but I'll pray for us if you'd like me to. Please do. That. do. Just uh, close us in prayer, and we look forward to being with you Sunday. And we're going to talk about this in length at length Sunday, and uh, we encourage you all to be there at ten thirty as we have our worship service. Please close us in prayer. Okay, dear Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you that you stand with us, that you are strong, that you are our general, that you will not send us into a battle that we cannot possibly overcome and become victors in. You have promised us that. You promised us that in your word, all the way through your word in so many passages. And Lord, I pray that as we endeavor to look at these passages where you have shown us that you are our strength, you are our hope, you are our joy, that we will 
encourage those people that are listening and those people that are in our fellowship that they too can be victorious in their battles of life and that they can recognize the enemy and recognize that it's not just some nameless, faceless, evil, bad thing out there, but that they can come against it with their faith and hope in you. And Lord, we just pray that um, you'll take care of our people, continue to take care of our people, and we look forward to worshiping you together on Sunday in our little church in the Grove. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.